0: Well, it is a pleasure to welcome you here to this event. Um, very much looking forward to the fascinating conversation that I think we're going to be having. And just to get us started, I'd like to introduce our illustrious panel. We're joined here first by Dr. William Lane Craig, who is the research professor of philosophy at Biola University in the States, as well as a professor of philosophy at Houston Baptist University. Dr. Craig holds two doctorates, one from the University of Birmingham and the other from the University of Munich. He's the author of over 30 books covering subjects ranging from the Kalam Cosmological Argument to the Resurrection of Jesus. Uh, Dr. Craig is a committed Christian. He gave his life to Christ at the age of 16 when he heard the Gospel and uh, committed his life to God. Uh, Our second panelist we're excited to welcome is Dr. Marion Taylor, who is a professor of Old Testament here at Wycliffe College at the University of Toronto. She holds a doctorate from Yale University in Old Testament. Her research uh, area is quite broad within that field, but most recently has been writing about women interpreters of the Bible, particularly ones that have been overlooked in history. Uh, She's currently writing a book uh, commentary on the books of Ruth and Esther in the Bible, but is the author of a number of books as well. She is also a Christian uh, and loves to read, write, and walk her dog at the cottage in northern Ontario. (laughs) And lastly, I'd like to introduce Dr. Bart Netterfield, uh, also a U of T representative. He's a Canadian astrophysicist and professor in the Department of Astronomy and in the Department of Physics here at the University of Toronto. He earned his doctorate from Princeton University in the States and is a leading expert in the development of balloon-borne technologies. He was a key member of the instrument team for Boomerang, the experiment that made one of the first accurate determinations of the age, geometry, and mass energy content of the universe. Uh, Dr. Netterfield is... Uh, committed Christian as well, and uh, loves to have conversations about big questions in life. Here's a question, perhaps, that will overlap with a few of the disciplines here on our panel. Uh, It relates to matter and antimatter. And the question asks, um, is the mind of
1: God matter or antimatter? So, God created the universe, which means he created all matter, and all dark energy, and all dark matter. So if God was before any of those things, he can't be made of any of those things.
2: Thank you. My question is uh, uh, the Kalam cosmological argument, which is used to prove God's existence. And in some cases, infinite regress is used to show uh, the the necessity for uh, a necessary being. However, I would like to ask this question in terms of how God acts himself. When God acts, he himself is bringing a, uh, an existent action upon himself. So there's a first among God's acts. So when God acts, does he not himself suffer from an infinite, infinite regress issue?
3: The question is whether or not when God performs the first action, this generates an infinite regress of earlier actions. And I don't think that it does. And the model here would be (coughs) libertarian free acts of will. When I freely choose to do A, is there a prior act of my choosing to freely choose to do A? Well, that would generate an infinite regress so that you could never freely do anything. And so the uh, action of freely choosing to do A is simply a basic action that doesn't imply or require some sort of antecedent cause of my freely choosing. And it would be exactly the same in the case of God's initial act of creation. God's freely choosing to bring the universe into being just is the initial act of creation, and there isn't a cause of his freely choosing to create the universe.
0: Now, Dr. Craig, actually, I know you've written books on this topic, but I'm, I wonder if there might be some of us in the audience who would, would love to hear a bit of a, a brief synthesis of what the Kalam cosmological argument holds and maybe how that All question right. fits into that.
3: This is a very ancient argument that was developed by early Christian commentators on Aristotle in response to Aristotle's doctrine of the eternality of matter, and the past eternity of the universe. Early um, Christian thinkers like John Philoponus, for example, uh, tried to argue against the possibility of an infinite past, that there could not be an infinite regress of events prior to the present event. There had to be an absolutely first event. And this tradition um, that was associated with these Christian commentators in Alexandria was then taken up into Islam when Islam swept across North Africa in the 7th century and became a highly sophisticated and highly developed facet of medieval Islamic theology. And that's where the name Kalam comes from. Kalam is the Arabic word designating medieval Islamic theological doctrine, and the centerpiece of their case for creation were were these Kalam arguments against the infinitude of the past. Um, This has now resurfaced in our contemporary scene and has become a hotly disputed topic um, concerning arguments for and against the infinity of the past, and it's received special urgency because of the unexpected advent of empirical evidence that the universe is not past eternal, but had a beginning at some time in the finite past. So that whereas these medieval and earlier proponents based their case for the finitude of the past on purely philosophical arguments, today much of the debate also concerns the astrophysical evidence that someone like Bart Netterfield studies for the infinitude of the past and the beginning of the universe. Thank you. That's fascinating. And actually, if, if it would be all right, I'd love to hear from actually both of our other
0: panelists on this topic. You know, um Dr. Netterfield as an astrophysicist, but then also I'd love to hear from you, Dr. Taylor, speaking as an Old Testament scholar on how maybe some of this modern scholarship on beginning of the universe and questions related to what was God doing before that? Could the act of creating the universe suggested something about what he is like? I'd love to hear some of your thoughts as well on that. But Dr. Nederfield, would you like yeah. to, to start us off?
1: Well, just, just following up on what Dr. Craig said, um, 20th century physics pretty, pretty much definitively showed that the universe as we know it is not eternal. And this was a huge battle during the 20th century between people who were arguing in favor of sort of the continuous expansion of the universe where it's, it is eternal and it's, it's expanding but eternal and the, the people who were arguing in, for, in favor of a Big Bang which, now of course the original Big Bang proponents in the 60s, people like Bob Dickey at Princeton were arguing that the universe expands, collapses, rebounds, expands, collapses, and you have this eternal cyclical universe. And what we found when we finally made the measurements in the end of the 90s with Boomerang and other experiments, was that, in fact, the universe does have a Big Bang, it's very clear, but that it's expanding, its expansion is speeding up. So you don't have the cyclical universe, it's not happening over and over again, it happened once. So in terms of the observable universe, in terms of the physics that we know, the universe has a beginning in finite time. Um, 13.7 billion years ago, if you are counting. But, um, and so you, know, the, you occasionally hear various theorists, especially theorists who like to write popular books, arguing against Christianity, if I want to be a little bit cynical, um, who will say, ah, 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 but we don't understand the physics at extremely high temperatures and high energies. So maybe we can make up some story where something happens and the universe is eternal. But my impression of that is that it's, um, anybody's allowed to speculate, and you can speculate with math or without, it's fine. If you stick with what we have, what we measure, what we know, the universe has a beginning, and it was 13.7 billion years ago.
4: (coughs) I don't
1: know if that's that's helpful. helpful. Dr. Taylor, would you want to add anything as a biblical scholar?
4: (laughs) Well, I'm a biblical scholar, so what happened before Genesis 1 is not something I know very much about at all. Right? So, uh, uh, so I think I will let these gentlemen talk about the early, um, the early days. Sure,
0: no, that's, that's helpful. Yes, I think we, well, well maybe we'll come back if we, if we have time in a moment, but I think we have another question over here, please. But did that address your question?
2: I wanted to just do a little bit of follow-up in terms of uh, God's own acts begin to exist themselves. Yeah. Right. So if God's own acts are beginning themselves, they themselves have to be either rooted oh. in something that's necessary. No, right? because so, the, l- 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 let me add a little bit. The um,
3: yeah. premise of the argument is that everything that begins to exist has a cause, and this is quite compatible with there being uncaused events like acts of free will, or if you believe in quantum indeterminacy, there could be quantum events that don't have um, causes. What the premise states is that there cannot be things, substances, uh, endowed with properties which simply pop into being from nothing. Uh, Anything that begins to exist is going to have some kind of prior causal condition, and God, of course, doesn't begin to exist in that sense and therefore has no prior causal conditions.
0: That's helpful. Well, maybe Gabriel will swing to the other side here for another question. Uh,
5: sort of related to that, uh, one important piece of uh, your case, Dr. Craig, th- th- you often make uh, when you move over to the scientific evidence for the beginning of the universe, uh, you bring up the Borg Guth theorem. And uh, a claim that I often hear made about the borguth Guth theorem is that uh, it only applies to classical mechanics, and that classical mechanics are false, and that you have, and that some quantum theory is going to uh, replace it, and that if th- Even if the universe has a beginning in some quantum state, perhaps the quantum state is eternal or perhaps timeless. So uh, how do you respond to that?
3: We were talking about this over dinner tonight, interestingly (laughs) enough. Um, You're quite right that the Borg-Guth-Vilenkin theorem is a classical theorem, which shows that uh, space-time as we know it goes back to a boundary and what Vilenkin says is that that boundary either represents the beginning of the universe or there was something on the other side of the boundary. If it is the beginning of the universe, then that is the absolute beginning. If there was something on the other side, that would be this quantum regime described by the yet-to-be-discovered theory of quantum gravity. And what Vilenkin says is that in that case that will be the beginning of the universe, but that era is not past eternal in the sense that you can extend it infinitely back into the past. Uh, And I don't think it's proper And here, we had a discussion over dinner tonight, I don't think it's proper to describe that as timeless in the sense in which philosophers would say that mathematical objects are timeless, like numbers, or that theologians would say God is timeless. Um, And so this 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 quantum regime, if it existed, is not something that would exist either strictly, timelessly, or be infinitely extended in the past. Um, and therefore, I don't think that it's going to restore the past eternality of the universe. It will simply represent the beginning of the universe itself.
5: Mm-hmm. Could I add a quick thing? Yeah. Um, would I be right to assume that whether you uh, approach it from the standpoint of an A theory of time or a B theory of time uh, could significantly affect what you think about this. Because I know that the Kalam cosmological argument assumes a uh, an A theory of time. So that in that context, if you reach this point that can't be extended any further, then that just is going to be a beginning. Although if you ha- have a B theory of time, you just reach this state that sort of terminates there.
3: like. All right, now our question here is throwing around a lot of technical (laughs) terminology that needs explaining if we're to profit from his question. He's distinguished quite properly between two philosophical theories of time, which are often called the A theory and the B theory, or sometimes this is called the tensed theory of time versus the tenseless theory of time. On the A theory, or the tensed theory of time, temporal becoming is a real and objective feature of reality. Things actually do come into being and pass away. There's a difference, a non-relational difference between past, present, and future. By contrast, on the tenseless, or B theory of time, although events in time are related by the tenseless relations earlier than and later than, There is no objective temporal becoming. This is a subjective illusion of human consciousness. Events simply exist at their appointed spatiotemporal coordinates in this uh, uh, four-dimensional space-time geometry. Now, the Kalam cosmological argument, as I think originally stated and formulated by its defenders, and as I've defended it, presupposes the tensed, theory of time, that temporal becoming is a real and objective feature of the universe. So that if the universe did begin to exist, that is the moment at which the universe comes into being. And given that something cannot come into being uncaused out of nothing, this fairly cries out for a transcendent cause of the universe's beginning. I think it's more difficult on the B theory or the tenseless theory of time, because in that case, the beginning of the universe doesn't represent the point at which the universe literally comes into existence. It's just, so to speak, the front edge. Uh, And the universe doesn't come into being at that point any more than a yardstick comes into being at the first inch. So I think it will be more difficult for the argument to have purchase on a B theory. And therefore, I've done my philosophical duty on this and written a two volume treatise on the A versus the B theory of time, where I defend the arguments for the A theory of time, the tensed view of time, and refute the arguments for the B theory of time, and then present the objections to it and defend the A theory against objections. And so, Critics uh, need to take account of that work that I have done in the philosophy of time. Having said that, there are B-theorists who defend the Kalam cosmological argument as well. For example, if a horse begins to exist at T5 and there is no horse at T4 or earlier, even the B-theorist wants to say, have to be some sort of causal conditions that would explain why there is tenselessly a horse at T5 in the corral where there is none at T4 earlier in the corral. They don't think that horses just begin to exist by magic. So even on the B-theory, I think the argument still goes through. It's just that I I think it's much more powerful on an A-theory, and besides, I'm persuaded the A-theory is true. Uh, And so that's the way in which I present it.
0: Mm. Thank you, Dr. Craig. I might just, I do, Dr. Taylor, want to hear some insight in terms of, you know, the narrative I think in our culture is that what we're learning from modern science is gradually eroding away confidence in the truthfulness of the Bible, particularly in these first few chapters of the book of Genesis. So I'd be curious, taking for instance something like the Big Bang or the idea of, of a first cause are these theories that are these theories that trouble you as an Old Testament scholar, or how maybe in general do you think you think through science as it relates to the Bible, particularly the Book of Genesis?
4: Okay, that's a that's a great question, and uh, my colleague here is also prepared to talk to this. Um, so, um, yeah, I I think um, we get in trouble when we read the Bible when we don't read it in its ancient context. So not just Genesis, but all of the Bible. And so when we read Genesis and think this is science, we get in trouble because we make claims for the text as a scientific document, which it doesn't even make for itself. And so I think when when biblical scholars began to uh, be sensitive to the fact that we have within the Bible different Genres and um, and we're sensitive to the claims of how to read that the different genres. It became more evident, I think, and uh, that how, that we should read Genesis as something other than a scientific document. And that also has been helped by finding other ancient um, documents from Egypt and Assyria and and Babylon, for example that have stories um, about the beginnings of creation and about the flood and similar stories that help us put in perspective and help us understand the context in which the Old Testament stories are framed. And so, also at dinner tonight, we were talking about uh, the firmament. Is there a firmament? And, um, and, uh, and um, how... how like how the ancients described uh, cosmology is not how we describe our, the universe today, and so we don't. When we read Genesis, and if you were an artist and drew the picture of the of how the ancients conceived of the universe, it's like there's water above and water below, and it and. You know, as Galileo uh, fought against that the universe uh, could be understood, according to the Psalms, as flat, we know those things aren't scientifically true. Mm. So we shouldn't, I think, as uh, readers of a text, claim for it to be science. Also, there are um, clear evidences, for example, in Genesis 1, of a poetic structure, of mm-hmm. a, a, and uh and, it, and then you have two creation accounts anyway in Genesis 1 and Genesis 2. And the order of creation in Genesis 2 is different than Genesis 1. Mm. And so even there you say, well, which one do we want to follow, right, in terms of when men and women are created and when the animals are created. And it's clear um, that the, the the purpose of the telling of Genesis 1, which talks about you know, uh, seven days, and it's orderly, and it's good, and God is the creator. I mean, that sets it up as God is the creator of the universe, and what God creates is very good, mm. and, uh, and the high point of the creation is the creation of male and female in God's image, mm. and, and, and that's a theology that is really important um, that drives the rest of the story of God, Uh, that God is in, God is in charge, God has created humans, he's given humans a job uh, to do in terms of having dominion over, uh, over the, over creation. And then in Genesis 2, it's a different, the different, it's a different focus. It's on the creation of male and female, and it's a different purpose there. And so I think, um, As we become sensitive to the purpose of the narrative, uh, we become better readers of the text. And I think a lot of of times Christians may, well, uh, God's, um, people who call themselves people of faith, have made claims about the text that the text doesn't ask them to make, Mm -hmm. and have made mistakes. And I think... The church has made a lot of errors in, in making claims for the text that, uh, scientific claims that are not there. I mean, even Jesus talked about the mustard seed as being the smallest seed. It's not, right? And so, but he was making a point there, not a scientific claim. Hmm. So uh, uh, that's where I come on it, and I think yeah. Uh, yeah. you might want to add.
1: Yeah, I mean, I'm not, I'm not an Old Testament scholar. I'm a, I'm a cosmologist, but... Um, I think there's other hints that you see when you read Genesis as to what the writer is getting getting at the concept that the Sun and the moon are created on the fourth day after three evenings and mornings and that seems odd unless you realize the point is that the Sun and the moon are not God's God created them and placed them in the sky and if we get bent up on the evening and the morning before the fourth day, you might wonder what's going on here. But I think when you think about it more clearly, when you understand what's going on, the point is God is a creator. He created the spaces. He created the things he put in them. He, they're in, he's created it intentionally by his word, and they are good. Hmm. And it speaks to the ancients saying that the created things are not God's, and it speaks to us saying that it didn't happen by chance. It happened by his sovereign will because he wanted it that way. Hmm.
6: Uh, hello, Dr. Craig. Uh, my name is Krishna, and um, I was wondering um, if... I, I read a paper that you wrote uh, called Pantheists in Spite of Themselves. Um, I was hoping uh, that you could help me clarify why um, uh, it is you reject pantheism, and if it's still ontologically possible, if under the assumption that the universe is eternal, forgot to be the grounding of, uh,
3: of matter in the universe mm-hmm. on pantheistic worldview. I, I'm going to need some help from our moderator here. Because of the acoustics, it's, I'm finding it difficult sure. sometimes
0: to understand. Let me see can, if you, I can, can you repeat state it question? Let me know if I
3: summarize it correctly. Okay. So you're
0: saying, you know, uh, Dr. Craig has published on the question of pantheism and presenting his view as a Christian and not a pantheist. And you're asking the question um, within a, a framework, maybe even of the cosmological argument, could it be that a pantheistic understanding of God could be that same basis, that first cause through which we, we you know, see the world. Is that our, correct me? Sort or?
6: of, sort of. It's, okay. it's just like if we make the assumption, so if we make the assumption that the universe is eternal, like, um, is it still possible for a pantheistic ontology to be coherent?
0: If the universe is still eternal. If under if the you, assumption. Under yeah. the assumption that the universe is eternal, is right. it possible for pantheism to be a coherent ontology? Ontology, yeah. Ontology. Right.
3: Not if this argument is sound. If the Kalam cosmological argument goes through, I, I think that it invalidates at a single swoop all pantheistic religions which identify the world as God and hence divine and necessary in its being. What this shows is that the universe is radically contingent and dependent upon a transcendent cause which brought it into existence. And so this argument, if sound, is incredibly powerful in that it would narrow down the viable options of the world's great religions to those fundamental monotheistic faiths, Judaism, Christianity, Islam, deism, that affirm the reality of a transcendent uh, creator of the universe. Mm. Yes, follow Um, up here.
6: I I think… I should probably be a bit more specific. My, my question is simply like, is it possible to, like, because even panentheism says that the universe would be like a modal property of God, right? So the universe can exist um, independent of God. Um, so my question is, like, can, is it still possible, metaphysically speaking, for God to be one and the same or at least a part of the universe,
3: no. Okay. I, I, I mean, I will repeat what I just said. It's impossible for them to be identical, to be one and the same, because this shows the universe to be contingent and in, and in a very radical way. I don't think that the universe would be part of God either because it would be an artifact created by God. It would be a product of God's causal activity. So it seems to me that this would rule out any kind of pantheism or even panentheism which would see the world as part of the divine being.
4: Yeah, thank you. Um, My question is, is, uh, what do you see to be the implications of this so-called war between Christianity and science? Um, The Bible, um, and for example, Genesis 1, and it being scientific or not scientific, but in culture today, what are the implications um, of of this so-called war. Does that make sense?
0: Yeah, could you elaborate when you say implications, how do you, what
1: do you mean by that?
4: Um, Well, how do you think that it affects how people view the church, for example, Mm. and Christians?
1: (laughs) I think it's a disaster. It's, it, 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 it's one of the things that annoys me the most is this picture that somehow Science, as we discover, this, this incredible universe, which just baffles, boggles the mind, its, it's beauty, the beginning of the universe, the, 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 this how everything works and fits together, could somehow be construed as an opposition to faith. It, how our culture somehow got to that place, it's, it, I don't understand, it. it it, it's, it, how did we get here? Because the universe so clearly points to the glory of God. And I, I couldn't imagine a universe that did so better. Of course, I haven't got a good imagination, but so I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm baffled and annoyed that this, that this battle even exists. Mm. And, you know, I guess we have to talk to historians about how it came to be. Mm. But, you know, I want to, kind of set, people, set some people straight here, right? And anyway, that's my take on it.
2: Yeah.
0: And Dr. Netterfield, you know, as someone speaking from this as it's your own field, yeah. how would you respond to other colleagues that you have who look at that same universe and say, well, I find it difficult to believe in the God of the Bible? How would you
1: say, <coughs> what, what e- or evidence okay, would you okay. lay out? So yeah. I don't actually have any scientist friends who say that. Mm. They don't say they find it difficult to believe. Mm they say, well, you can't prove it, Mm. and I need proof. And you can't prove it is a statement that perhaps Dr. Craig would disagree with. (laughs) It has some level, right? Because you have these compelling, compelling arguments. I think the reason people believe and don't has nothing to do with cosmology. Mm. It has everything to do with people's own openness toward God. Mm. And I... Um, Certainly within my colleagues, people don't argue to me, maybe they're being polite, I don't think so, that um, cosmology points toward there being no God. They don't say that. In fact, um, a particularly telling comment a few years back was one a a colleague of mine whose name you would recognize said, it's actually kind of a hard time to be an atheist cosmologist. Um, but not impossible, because you can always find an alternative explanation. As Dr. Craig was pointing out, we have the very, very, very beginning of the universe where quantum gravity, theory, theory of quantum gravity is required to know what's going on, and we don't have such a theory. Consequently, we can speculate that maybe something happens and there's no time, or right? But you have to play games like that. So, yeah. That's no, I, I, I think that people don't believe because they don't believe, not because science argues against it at least the people in my field. Sure, that's helpful. Mm-hmm.
0: Uh, Dr. Craig, I'd love to hear your thoughts as well, maybe on this idea of faith and proof, and how, how do you understand those two things coming together? You know, there's that verse in the Bible that says, faith is blind. Would you say that there is yeah. a dichotomy in your mind between faith
7: about things... I think it's wrong not to yeah. construct
3: an opposition between faith and knowledge. Mm-hmm. It seems to me that's just a category mistake. Uh, Faith is not a way of knowing something. Rather, faith is trusting in something that you have good reason to believe is true. Faith Faith. in my chair. Yes, exactly. Uh, Or you go to the doctor and allow him to prescribe medicines to you or maybe to operate on you. You place your trust in this individual because you have good reason to think that this is uh, competent Uh, And so, I would say the same is is the case for uh, belief in God, that faith is not a way of knowing something, it's a way of trusting in something that you have good reason to think is true.
0: Mm. That's helpful. That distinction is is helpful. It's not original with me, (laughs) uh,
8: (laughs) uh, but uh, I I think it's it's, uh, correct. Sure. So, this question is for all the three of you because I think each discipline might have a slightly different answer. And it's a bit vague, but um, so there is this narrative since the Enlightenment and the advent of evolutionary theory that we as a humanity or as the West, we are improving our knowledge. We're increasing in knowledge. We are getting closer and closer to truth as the more we study. Uh, But some people like C.S. Lewis have called this chronological snobbery in a way that there is much that we need to recover from the past and for example, reducing our knowledge to what we can feel or reason. That's what the Enlightenment said actually is a poorer way of understanding reality. So I would like to know, in your respective fields, whether you see that we are increasing in knowledge the more we move forward, if there was a golden age that we should go back to or that we should recover from the past, or if we are fated to always have an equal measure of wrong and right beliefs despite of what we try to do. I'd like to hear your opinions in the philosophy, theology, and science, uh, scientific fields.
1: Do you understand that question? Absolutely. Great. Who would like to start us off? Would sure. <laughs> I can start with science, because it's kind of easy and kind of not. Um, I think we have to understand, first of all, you need to define what I consider science, and that's coming up with a accurate description of the behavior and history of the universe. And I think we're doing a much better job than we ever have in being able to describe the behavior of the universe we can predict the outcome of almost any experiment we can think of, and we have a very good idea of um, the history of the universe to the point where you can predict what you would see if you look at a, you know, galaxy at a certain distance. Or you, So we really have an understanding of the description of the universe. In doing so, we've, I think you can say that, that we may have, be- people have become a lot weaker philosophically in terms of, Understanding what it all means, great. I can under, and we can make this mistake of saying, you know, when I drop the pen, it falls because of gravity. What does that mean? It falls because, I don't know why it falls, but I can describe its falling in beautiful detail. And we end up kind of getting fuzzy about what we mean. So science can describe the behavior of everything incredibly well, and we end up with this illusion that now we understand why it happens, I, I don't see why. People always knew pens fell. That's not new. And the fact that somebody a thousand years ago couldn't describe the falling of a pen in as much detail as we can today doesn't mean they understood why it fell less. Is that, I don't know if that's, mm-hmm. I'm, I'm splitting some hairs. seriously splitting some hairs here. I'm getting a scowl from Dr. Mm-hmm. Craig, but. No, no, no. <laughs> 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 so you would say the
0: part that of science that has advanced is in terms of our knowledge of the mechanics of how things are
1: working. Yeah, the, de- the, be- the description of the behavior of the universe mm. was far better than ever was. Prediction of what would happen next. Yeah. The ability to manipulate things. Mm. And in, in doing so, people just don't spend a lot of time thinking about what it means. Interesting. Hmm. That's helpful. Mm-hmm. Thank you.
4: Uh, this is a very, fa- it's a fascinating question. Um, and I could answer it in different ways. In in one way, we know more about the Bible now in terms of uh, where it came from, the processes of editing, uh, the text, what the what the actual words being, uh, you know, where what the te- you know how we got the present shape of the Bible. We have a lot of that kind of knowledge now. But one of my the, one of my favorite books uh, is called "Reading the Bible with the Dead," and uh, it's written by John Thompson, who teaches at Fuller Seminary. It's a brilliant title, and he argues correctly that the dead can teach us about how to read the Bible in ways that we've forgotten. And uh, and one of the key ways that modern biblical scholars have Uh, primarily forgotten since the Enlightenment, is to read the book as scripture theologically, as as God authoring the text. And so uh, a very exciting development in biblical studies in the last 15 or 20 years has been the recovery of this theological way of reading text, texts, which includes uh, cool things about intertextuality and uh, you find a word here, and it echoes this another story, and then you bring in the insights and motifs from that other story to shed light on the current story. So I, I'll give you a, just an example of that. I was reading a sermon, well, a book written by a woman named Harriet Livermore, who was a 19th century preacher who preached before Congress three times, and she was wrestling with the question of women's role. She felt called to be a preacher, and yet some people in the church say, Well, Paul says women should keep silent and they shouldn't teach. And and it, she cited a text in Corinthians that says, Women should keep silent according to the law. So then she said she she wrote a, she has a book where she goes back and says, Well, let's go back to the old testament and see what the Bible says about uh, women keeping... what the Old Testament says about women keeping silent. And she goes through the whole Old Testament. In her book, she has insights that I have never read anywhere else. And she imagines when Queen Esther is coming before King Xerxes, and she's very nervous, uh, and we don't really know... um, what she thinks, she pairs the great reversals that happen in the story of Esther when, you know, the Jews are all going to be killed and then there's a big reversal and they're saved. She puts the words of the, the Hannah's prayer from the book of Samuel in the words of Esther in a beautiful way. And I thought, I never would have thought of doing that. But I learned from somebody long dead a way of interpreting the Bible that is Mm life-giving. So I think, yeah, we do know a lot more about the text, its transmission, the different genres, how to read poetry, you know, all, we have new sensitivities to readings. um, But we've lost some things, we've gained some things because we now have many global partners. We can, we can read You know, how Africans read the Bible, how uh, Asians read the Bible, how there's a a whole book, an Oxford Dictionary of Biblical Interpretation, hundreds of methods of interpreting. So it's very complex now. Mm. Uh, Some of it's good, some of it's not so good. So I think we're in a very wonderful period in terms of Biblical Interpretation. We have many options, and we are recovering Mm. forgotten, very deep, theological ways of reading texts that are most helpful for the church.
3: Thank you. Dr. Craig, how about your field? Very briefly, I think that philosophy does also make progress, not as dramatically as science, but it does advance. And I think where this chronological snobbery that you speak of, evidences itself, is in the smug assumption that philosophers of the past may have thought something, and now that's become obsolete and untenable. An example would be (coughs) a German philosopher of mathematics I read recently, who said that medieval uh, philosophers believed that mathematical objects existed as ideas in the mind of God. And his response to that was, well, in our secular age, Uh, this is no longer a tenable uh, hypothesis, but this is now obsolete. That's a great example of chronological snobbery. There was no substantive objection to it at all, just that this is now uh, an antiquated way of looking at it because it was theistic rather than naturalistic. Hmm.
6: That's fascinating. It was a great question, thank you. So I have a question for Dr. Craig. so, you use the analytic tradition for much of your work, um, especially in its reliance on things like logic, conceptual analysis, and clarity, um, but you, and you denounce the continental tradition um, following Swinburne, uh, that it's a bit loose and sloppy. Yes. But you do use the continental tradition in your discussion of the absurdity of life without God. Um, could you say something on that? Do you think that there are other insights from the
3: continental tradition, um, asides describing a world uh, without God? I haven't found it, but that's probably partly because I haven't looked there for it. I find the analytic tradition in the um, Anglo-American tradition so powerful in its emphasis on clarity of definitions, logical reasoning, the construction of clear arguments, that this is the most useful way of doing philosophy in contrast to continental thinking. But as you say, I have profited greatly from French existentialism with respect to its analysis of the human predicament, and in the dialogue tomorrow with Jordan Peterson and Rebecca Goldstein, I'll be appealing precisely to that tradition to argue that in the absence of God, life is ultimately meaningless. So I have found value there, but I simply haven't cared to play plow through the murky waters of continental thought in search for uh, extra gems. I, I find enough in the Anglo-American analytic tradition to keep me busy.
8: My, my question is for Dr. Craig. Um, in your published work, you defended the ontological argument and followed the approach of perfect being theology which conceives of God as a maximally great being. You also wrote, and I quote, Christians have thought of God as the fount of all varieties of goodness, whether moral, metaphysical, and aesthetic. My question is related to this last um, aspect of aesthetics, and it is this. Can a Christian theist, or indeed any theist, affirm that God is a maximally beautiful being? If yes, could you please explain how this can be a coherent idea, given that the concept of beauty usually refers to something physical or material, and God is, by definition, an immaterial, unembodied mind. Thank you. I think the development of an aesthetic argument
3: for the existence of God is a doctoral dissertation waiting to be written. I am very sympathetic to this idea, but I don't know how to do it. Uh, I'm not an aesthetician. I've not worked in the area of aesthetics, but the notion of God as as the the standard and paradigm of beauty as well as goodness strikes me as very appealing, and so I would like to see someone do this. Uh, The Boston College uh, philosopher Peter Kreeft has said that of all the arguments for God's existence that he has presented, the one that resonates most with students is a kind of aesthetic argument that goes simply like this, The music of Johann Sebastian Bach exists. Therefore, God exists. Wow. And then he says, you either get this one or you don't. (laughs) No, I would like to see a lot more done. Uh, I would like to see that unfolded and developed. It's too pithy for me, but I I just haven't worked on it myself. I I find it a fun question as well. Um, You know,
1: sort of sometimes I put my naturalist hat on, and I think, hmm. What is the evolutionary advantage for me considering a sunset to be beautiful? And I can't come up with a reason. It's like there's something else, this concept of beauty, but as I'm doing as an armchair speculator in the kitchen while doing dishes, not
7: as a professional, so. (laughs) Uh, This is for Dr. Craig. Um, I've been reading your book, God Overall, and I've been really enjoying it. Um, My question is in regards to how might the nominalist think about God's Knowledge of propositions and possible
3: worlds prior to the divine decree. Okay, could you repeat that again for me? Yeah. I'm asking the moderator here, so, yeah. I, so I can. Hear uh, more how thoughts. might
7: the nominalist think about God's knowledge of propositions and possible worlds prior to the divine decree?
3: How might the molinist? The nominalist. The nominalist. The nominalist. Oh, yeah. oh, oh, who might be a molinist? Oh. Well, what one would say is that um, prior to the divine decree. God knows how every free creature that he might have created would freely choose to act in any circumstances in which God might place him. And you don't have to refer to propositions or possible worlds or any of those sorts of things. Those are just handy-dandy heuristic devices for talking about things like, the way in which free creatures would behave if they were under certain circumstances. So I'm an anti-realist about those platonic Mm -hmm. sorts of entities, like possible worlds, propositions, properties, and so forth. I think those are just a handy façon de parler, uh, nice way, a manner of speaking, to make discourse about these things tractable.
1: My question is for our cosmologists. the whole idea of intelligent design seems to have fallen on hard times by the way that some practitioners um, have uh, employed it, but yet I can't help but think that you would want to argue that uh, there are lots of things in the cosmos that do point to an intelligent designer. So my question is, um, what is the status of the notion of intelligent design? And if it's in, if it's in, uh, if it's in ruins, how would you redeem it? Uh, how would you construe it? Uh, because there is a point at which you sort of cross a line from science to theology, right? Because, yeah. you know, if you have this intelligent design, it points to an intelligent designer, but the designer himself can't be repeated in experiments and that kind of thing. So could just address the issue of intelligent design and tell us how you think it, uh, um, whether it has merit or not, and how you would construe it? Oh, man. Yes. It's such an interesting question and so fraught with doing it wrong. Um, <laughs> So, there are a lot of unsolved problems in science. Um, a lot of the intelligent design people like to talk about biology, being fraught with unsolved problems. Um, not, they're not considered to be unsolvable problems, however. And so, most biologists believe that, hey, we'll figure this out. Like, it's the early days. We've only been working on this for 100 years, and it's a really complex system. And so, we can look at, the complexity of biology, and say, wow, there's so much stuff I don't understand. There must be a creator. And most biologists would say, give us time. And then you end up in a situation where you're like, oh, so we're going to claim that when I finally understand the evolution of life and cells and and first life and all these things, I finally understand this, then I give up my need for God. That would be the implication that the supporters of intelligent design might put forward. And I kind of think about it like this. Imagine um, we go and we look at this collection of poetry, um, Shakespearean sonnets, and um, we study them, we study the rhyme, we study the meter, we study the the form, and in the discussion, one person says, wow, Shakespeare really, and somebody says, what, Shakespeare? We don't need Shakespeare. We understand the laws that govern Shakespearean sonnets. There's no longer a reason to to appeal to to a poet. So, in the same way, the, the notion that somehow, someday we'll understand all of the, describe in great detail the behavior of the universe, understand the rules by which the universe behaves, we no longer need a poet or a creator, mm-hmm. is baffling. It's a, it's a bizarre prospect. Right? That being said, and this is a curious thing. So, there's what I would expect. I would expect that eventually we'll, un- we'll be able to understand the rules of poetry, the rules of physics that God has used to, 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 go- to govern, that he uses when he creates the universe. But at the same time, there's a whole bunch of stuff we haven't figured out. Um, we don't understand how the universe can, there are many, there's many issues in terms of what people call fine-tuning of the physical laws that we don't understand, which it's really tempting to say, ah, God's intervention. And he absolutely could have intervened. That's, well, actually, God created the whole thing. So he didn't intervene. He sustains it. He holds it together. The universe exists the way it is exactly because he wanted it to. So in, from, from my point of view, when I dropped the pen, the reason it fell was because of the act of sovereign will of God in the same way that a pair of lines rhyme in a Shakespearean sonnet. It's because of the act and sovereign will of Shakespeare. Um, so the, the question of intelligent design, it's almost like a, you step back a step and look at the whole thing and say, wow, God is amazing. This is far beyond anything that I would have ever come up with. So that's, that's helpful. Thank you.
9: All right. So this is addressed specifically to Dr. Craig. And so I noticed that in your responses to several of the questions um, this evening, you've made multiple appeals to the idea of libertarian free wills and explanation for some of those conundrums that we sometimes have to answer. Now, I know that that is something that is a little bit of a... Controversial topic amongst Christians, and not every uh, Christian necessarily holds to the idea of libertarian free will. So, I'm just wondering, in your view, is it absolutely essential uh, for a Christian worldview to posit libertarian free will, or can we have a coherent Christian worldview without positing mm-hmm. such an
3: idea? Well, I'm not ready to rule Calvinists out of the fold. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. But I do think that they're. Theology is radically defective, okay uh, yes, and the, and therefore uh, a sound Christian theology should affirm the existence of libertarian free creatures who are therefore morally responsible before God for their free moral choices a- and apart from libertarian free will, I, I just cannot make sense of things like sin, and especially the absence of universal salvation, given that God desires all to be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. So, Mm -hmm. yes, I think that libertarian free will is something that is non-compromisable. I'd be
0: curious to hear, actually, from our other two panelists, how you understand the concept of free will. It is something that's coming up, not just, I think, in Christian circles, but you have a number of prominent atheist authors as well, raising questions about whether there is such a thing as, as free will and a strict, in a, maybe a strict biological determinism. So just curious, the way maybe you think about your faith and this concept of free will. Dr. Netterfield. Yeah, it's that? interesting.
1: So in the context of physics, what you have to ask yourself, what does free will mean? And so in the old sort of mechanistic worldview of, say, Newton, there's no such thing. But then when you add kind of quantum mechanics mixed with Um, chaos, you can have absolute randomness build itself up into, you know, macroscopic scales. And so, you have the the room for spiritual, our spirits to influence the behavior of the universe, if that makes any sense. So, yes, from the point of view of physics, Hmm. libertarian free will Hmm. has a place you can put it, and it's no problem. Hmm. Um, There's no problem with introducing libertarian free will from the point of view of physics. The challenge, of course, and I think the scriptures themselves battle this challenge, even sometimes in the same verse, hmm. between the absolute sovereignty of God and the absolute requirement that we must be free. And I think from a, from a biblical point of view, I find it to be sort of this, this, this conflict that happens all the time in, in the theology where there's, there's more to it than we can understand. Um, so I... I tend to be very strong on on absolute sovereignty and very strong on free will, and I don't
3: know how they're compatible. You should (laughs) should be a Molinist.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Dr. Taylor?
4: Well, I I think you're onto something. I think you can defend—I mean, the reason we have theologians and theologians fighting about these issues is both can— both can find proof for their position, in the strong, Bible. Very, very strong proof, right? And and I think in terms of how we practically live, to believe in a, the sovereignty of God is, uh, I think, a really important uh, view for me as a Christian and how I live my daily life. And I And I have a strong belief in God's sovereignty. But I also live every day mm. acknowledging I have free will and God in his grace, gives me choice, right? So I don't think, um, you know, I think God allows you the freedom to choose. Like, I remember when I was an undergraduate student at University of Toronto, uh, listening to somebody say, have a talk about, is there one person you should marry, right? (laughs) And then you think, if that person chooses to go to a McGill instead of Queens and I go to U of T, we're screwed, right? I, yeah. mean, we are, I mean, we will never, that's like God's sovereign will for my life won't happen because this other person made the wrong choice. And I, like, I, I don't think my life is controlled like that at all. I think God, uh, within God's will, we have freedom to choose. Um, and, and I, I mean, I, so I, f- I live in that tension between uh, both views. And I think that's a healthy way to live. I think people who think everything's predetermined can, can be so judgmental and, um, and narrow in their focus. And people who have, ha, you know, go too far the other way can also lose out on, on some really important teachings about the sovereignty of God.
3: Mm-hmm. Thank you. So, you know, I was teasing Bart a moment ago about Molinism, but quite seriously, if you're interested in the reconciliation of divine sovereignty and human libertarian freedom, you need to look at the work of the Catholic counter-reformer, Luis Molina. Molina's okay. achievement in this regard is astonishing, mm-hmm. uh, and I think that his development of the doctrine of middle knowledge which provides the key to his reconciliation of divine sovereignty and human freedom is the most fruitful theological concept I have ever encountered in my life, and it has all sorts of interesting applications theologically. So, if you're interested in that, take a look at a little book like um, My Only Wise God, uh, which is about divine sovereignty and uh, human freedom and God's foreknowledge of the future, The Only Wise God.
7: Mm-hmm. That's so really right, quick. follow up.:
3: Sure. Yeah, so just really quickly,
9: why can't uh, a compatibilist view of the will, let's say, uh, solve those conundrums involving human responsibility and the problem of evil?
3: <clears throat> because it makes God the author of evil, since He's the one who determines it, and it makes nonsense of these passages in the scripture about the universal salvific will of God that God is not willing that any should perish but that all should reach repentance. God desires all persons to be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. I can't make sense of the passages like that apart from human freedom because that would be the only thing that would explain why God's universal salvific will doesn't come to pass.
9: it's a question for uh, all three of you. yeah, just as an evangelical Christian, um, and my question is about the doctrine of hell, and Dr. Taylor, you talked a little bit about hell in Old Testament classes today. <laughs> and uh, Dr. Craig, you teach a lot about and you defend the uh, doctrine of hell, and it's very logically coherent, but, but how do you emotionally comprehend with the doctrine of hell, knowing that, you know, as a Christian, uh, we know several people that we love that will, even one person that may spend an eternity in hell
3: How do we emotionally comprehend this doctrine? Okay, you've asked an emotional question, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, Because I come from a non-Christian family and background as well. And so the question is, how do you handle emotionally the notion Mm -hmm. that your loved ones may be forever separated from God? And I think that um, there's a couple of things. One is that God loves them and wills their salvation more intensely than you do. Um, Think of the passages I've already quoted. God desires every person to be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. And so the only reason that anyone is lost is because that person willfully rejects and ignores God's every effort to save them, and separates himself from God irrevocably forever. So, I don't think God sends anybody to hell. I think people send themselves by irrevocably separating themselves from God, and it is against God's will. They they defy the will of God for them by choosing to reject Him. Then the other thing that can be helpful is to remember God's not finished with these folks yet, many of them anyway. Um, If they're still alive, Continue to pray for them, because you don't know what's going to happen. I prayed for my parents for 30 years, virtually every day, without any visible results. And then all of a sudden, I got a call one day from my mother, and she said, your father and I have been talking, and we think we're ready to commit our lives to Christ. What do do we have to do? You could have knocked me over with a feather. This came out of the blue. And I said, well, there, there's a, one of my books that you've got a copy of it. <laughs> in the back. There's a prayer that you can pray to commit your lives to Christ. Pray that prayer with each other and then call us back and tell us. A little while she called back again. she's, she's okay, your dad and I prayed the prayer. Uh, we, we went through it twice just to make sure it would stick. <laughs> and lo and behold, late in their lives, my parents came to faith in Christ completely unexpectedly. And I was so convicted because, quite honestly, I had given up on them. I was still going through the motions of praying for them on a daily basis, but I had no hope or expectation. And I was really convicted because I thought, Here, the left hand of God's providence was secretly at work in their lives all this year, and I never saw it, and so I didn't believe it was happening, but in his goodness, it was. So don't give up on those family members that haven't come to faith yet. Keep praying for them that the Holy Spirit will draw them to himself because God loves them, and he wants them to be saved.
1: I don't know if you have anything to add, or that's, that's helpful. That's,
5: okay. well, it's, a, it's an
1: emotional question, mm. and I, I guess how I handle it emotionally is I fall back on what I know about God, that He is loving and that He is just, and if I don't understand it, it's okay, because He does, and I can, I can, I can trust Him, as Dr. Craig said to love them more than I do, and that in the end, we will look and we will say, yes, God did the right thing. And so that's, I think that has to to be the answer, we have to just fall back on knowing what we know about our loving God.
7: So, I want to shift gears a little bit and ask a personal question to all three of you, Um, and it's about vocational calling. When you look back on your academic professional career, um, were there any moments when you thought, "Oh, I don't think this is my calling Um, as an academic, as a scholar"? um, You know, I suspect as you went through college and graduate school and things like that, um, and as you discovered your gift in you know academic work and things start to line up, um, presumably you thought in your in your mind, "Oh, I think you know this direction that I'm headed is." where God's leading me in my, in, in my vocational calling. Um, but perhaps um, maybe you had moments where things d- didn't work out, things um, happened that sort of disrupted your sense of um, direction in your vocational calling. Um, and so were there any times or moments when you sort of doubted um, the direction that God's been leading you in, specifically in your, in your vocational calling, and how did God... Um, how were how, how those sense of uh, disruption or confusion resolved? Um, now, this question assumes that you have been thinking about these things and that you're self-aware enough to, um, <laughs> <laughs> you know, but, and I know with you, Dr. Craig, you've shared about um, how you ended up working with um, John Hick, um, how your wife uh, gave you the you know his contact number and things like that, and then you also mentioned about Pandenberg and things like that, but I'm interested in, for you, um, or from you, things that you haven't shared previously, and um, from the other two I haven't heard about, your personal story, so I would like to share something personal um, on this topic,
3: thank you. If I understand the question, it may be you already know my story, Uh, and that is, uh, my academic life had just been blessed by God, and we had been just led miraculously through seminary to doctoral work in England, and then doctoral work in Germany. And then we had a disaster befall us that put a question mark behind everything that I was doing, and it was this. I failed my oral exams in systematic theology at the University of Munich. Um, It was through wrong advice about how to prepare for them. Uh, And as a result, I went into these examinations completely ill-prepared and failed. And this was a crisis of faith for me because we believed God had called us to Germany to do this doctorate. We had been praying for it. We were confident that we were in his will, and yet I failed and went home without my degree in hand. And through that lesson, I came to see a new insight into the will of God for our lives, namely that God's will for your life can include failure, that it can be God's will for you to fail, and he can lead you into failure, because I think God has things to teach you through failure that you will never learn through success. And in my case, in the following year of preparing to retake those oral exams, I so schooled myself in the field of systematic theology that I learned far, far more about systematic theology during that year than I ever would have had I managed somehow to pass those orals the first time. And so God used that experience to unusually equip me for the ministry to which he had called me. But at the time, I had no idea that that's what was going on because it was such a, 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 an unexpected setback. So that would be, in my personal experience, the greatest example of this seeming shift of direction and calling into question all that I had thought I'd been called to do up to that point. But then at the same time, the reaffirmation of that direction and a strengthening to go on and pursue it even more zealously.
0: Mm. That's very helpful. Thank you. Would you, Dr. Taylor, would you like to share?
4: Yeah, I, I don't have, um, my life journey has not been, uh, I don't have a parallel story, but I, I certainly, when I, I mean, my my vocation as a biblical scholar was not one i ever, had ever dreamed of when i was an undergraduate at the university of toronto i took i was interested in the bible i was a new christian i wanted to learn more and i took a course in old testament and as you know as it turns out the uh, professor was on the scale he was a very he was very left in terms of methodology and, he, and he, he said to us, and, and most of the students in the class were uh, keen Christians wanting to learn about the Bible. And he said, forget everything you learned in Sunday school. I'm going to teach you how to read the Bible. And then he presented his theories of how, how many sources there were in Genesis. And I had so many questions because I was a very keen Christian. Went back to my pastor at church and he said, why are you taking that course? Well. That wasn't an answer for me either right and I and so I was already the questions had been raised and on one of the papers I wrote where we had to compare Egyptian proverbs and the proverbs in the book uh, in the Old Testament and the conclusion was to to show parallels and therefore the Hebrews borrowed and therefore it's not revealed and uh, in a very negative way I had I remember writing I really can't do this because I can't compare the original languages. And the professor wrote in red, why don't you learn them? <laughs> <laughs> I, okay, I will, right? And so then I started learning Greek and Hebrew. And and so my journey kind of evolved slowly. Mm. And it was out of that very negative teaching experience. And I, I had this conviction, that is not how you should teach. Mm. right? Huh. And, and I thought, um, and so... Mm. I was not from a family of academics. My mother had died when I was a kid, and my dad was a carpenter. Nobody had really gone on in university, and, and so I had no road to travel, and, yeah. and so I ended up, you know, doing a, a master's in Near Eastern studies, and then I thought, well, I still have questions about God, so then I did a, a, a master's... Masters of Divinity, and then I still have questions. So it was my questions on how to, how to integrate my faith and in my intellect that was driving my education, and and, and my journey was going back and forth, and uh, it took a long time. But I, but in the end, as I as I embraced this journey, um, I realized I really did love teaching, and uh, it became. Um, it just unfolded as to that uh, being a really good fit for me, mm. and, um, and it has been. And, and I have had, um, you know, from before I finished my doctorate, I've been teaching at Wycliffe College, and I have loved my job and loved my career here. Mm. So I, I feel very grateful to God for, you know, that comment on a paper. That the guy wrote, why don't you learn these languages? And I thought, okay, I will. And then there, there, there it happens, right? So, so I, I mean, I, I do believe in God's providence, right? And, and, and I think God can use tragedy in your life. He can use uh, hard things in your life. He can use bad teachers in your life to weave the weave. God weaves, um, you know, if you look at the back of a tapestry, it can be very messy, Lots of colors, lots of knots, seeming mistakes. And yet on the other side, it's very beautiful. Mm-hmm. And, I, in my, and I, I think of the, this, you know, I'm working on the book of Esther, and like Esther is an orphan, and then she's taken away from her uncle and put in a harem. It's like sex trafficking. But God uses that horrible experience in this young girl's life mm-hmm to bring around the salvation and rescue of the Jews from genocide. So God can use horrible experiences for good, mm-hmm. right? And, and I've seen that in my life, too. Mm-hmm. Hard things have happened, but they get woven into the story of uh, God in my life, and they can turn into something beautiful or be used to help somebody else who's going through a hard time.
0: Mm-hmm.
4: So hard. I, I think... Like, I do believe in God's sovereignty over our lives, and, and he uses many people and, and successes and failures and different voices to all bring it together. Mm. Yeah.
0: That's encouraging. Mm. Dr.
1: Netafield, I think we'll give you the last word on this, and uh, all right. we'll give you the yeah. final word of the night. Thanks. So I, um, I grew up in a Christian home in British Columbia. My father was a pastor. My grandfather was a former pastor, and he lived with us. Mm. He was around 90 years old. Um, my grandfather was also a young Earth creationist, and had all these books about how su- how su- science should show that the universe is only six thousand years old. and hmm. And he said to me, "Study science, and you'll see the glory of God." Hmm. It's like, huh? Okay. Uh, what I really liked was like making things work and building stuff. I built model planes and trains, and I thought I was going to be an aeronautical engineer. And then I discovered relativity and decided it was the coolest thing I've ever heard of, so maybe I'll become a physicist. So I went off to college. And I went to Bethel College, which is a Christian Liberts college in in, uh, Minnesota. And some of my professors were young earth creationists, and some of them weren't. And notably, my Bible professors and theology professors weren't, (laughs) (laughs) which was interesting. But... I really felt incredibly uncomfortable with the whole topic of cosmology because that's sort of a thing that sort of you feel, at least a kid growing up in the 80s in the evangelical worlds, that's kind of dirty. You don't want to go into cosmology because, you know. So I was gonna do, do computational theoretical physics because that sounded really awesome. So I applied to Princeton for grad school, got in, had a job I was gonna do computational physics there. Um, which was brand-new, right, in 1990. Computational physics was really early on, early days. But the professor I was going to work with um, was uh, one of the principal scientists on the Hubble Space Telescope, and it was out of focus. So he called me up like two weeks before I was leaving for Princeton for my new job and said, yeah, I can't actually take a student because I'm going to be in Washington, D.C. in meetings uh, all year, so you better find a new advisor call the grad office, they have something. So the only job was in Experimental Cosmology Group. It's like, well, okay. And it was actually in a lab, and I started getting into it and found it so incredibly exciting and interesting. And it was so interesting that I actually didn't study for my prelims and failed them. So we have that in common. Hmm. (laughs) (laughs) But then I studied for them and passed, so (laughs) it worked
2: out. (laughs)
1: Um, and, and basically just as, I didn't really want to go into this. I was kind of scared of it, but the thing I had to keep telling myself is all truth is God's truth. If something is true, yeah. then it's God's. You can't have, you can't have truth that isn't God's truth, and you can't suppress the truth. You think about this passage in Job, mm-hmm. where um, Job was saying, well, are you going to lie for God? Are you going to def- try and defend him? What happens if he looks at you? And I think we have to do the same thing. Are we going to lie for God? No, we will never lie for God. And in doing so, it allowed me the incredible privilege of being part of the generation of cosmologists who finally understand the age, the geometry, the content of the universe, the history of it. And my wife is calling me. Um, (laughs) Should I answer? (laughs) Oh, uh, why not, right? I did this once in my class of Astro One Hundred and One with a thousand students. No, All from the NSA. Yeah, <laughs> it's 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 her. Hi, honey. I'm talking right now. <laughs> Hi, I'm actually doing a presentation, and the room's laughing at me because I'm talking to you. <laughs> oh, I about that. you love my love. Thank you. Love you too. <laughs> Bye. Bye. Oh yes, and I met my beautiful wife my first week in college. So
4: there you
1: go. <laughs> um. Yeah. So it wasn't what I expected. It wasn't where I was going, but God just kept pushing me in the right direction. And what an incredible, what an incredible experience it's been Hmm. to just see the glory of God in the universe. And so my grandfather was right, but not in the way he expected either.
2: Hmm. Hmm.
0: Thank you. I think it's a great way to wrap up our time together. I really appreciate the vulnerability and personal touch each of those stories involves, not just as how your faith has intersected your discipline, but how it's helped you make meaning of the journey that you've been on. and I'm sure that's encouraging to those of us who are students and, and asking these questions about what we're gonna do with our lives and what the question of God and faith might have to do with that and what Jesus might offer